Hi everyone, welcome back to Cyber.RAR. My name is Michaela, and in our last episode, the RAR team discussed the concept of cybersecurity and protecting people, especially vulnerable people. We talked about the current framing of the conversation as cyber war and cyber crime, and we made the case for updating our thinking about cyber threats to mirror how we think about climate change. If you haven't listened to it, please go back and check it out. Today, we're taking the conversation a little bit deeper. I have the amazing opportunity to sit down with Eva Galperin, the Director of Cybersecurity for EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Her work is primarily focused on providing privacy and security for vulnerable populations around the world, so she is the perfect person to join us for this episode. With her political science and technical background, she's done everything from organizing EFF's Tor Relay Challenge to writing privacy and security training materials and publishing research on malware in Syria, Vietnam, Lebanon, and Kazakhstan. Since 2018, she has worked on addressing the digital privacy and security needs of survivors of domestic abuse. She's also a co-founder of the Coalition Against Stalkerware. Thank you so much, Eva, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So maybe to start, can you tell our audience a little bit about your background and what brought you to the work that you do today? Well, um, I really started out in, uh, in sort of IT and uh, network administration and Unix systems administration uh, in the 90s, largely because uh, I had been a feral child on the internet and this was a marketable skill when I was a teenager. Um, then in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, when the bottom fell out of the market and like the first dot-com crash, happened. Uh, I went back to school. I got a degree in political science and international relations with an emphasis in Chinese and uh, sort of uh, moved over into human rights. Uh, And then I went to go work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, where I started out on the legal team and then moved over to uh, activism and then to international work. And then finally uh, was one of the founding members of our threat lab, which combines all of these skills into a sort of Voltron in order to protect vulnerable populations. That's so amazing and such an interesting path to where you are today. I think all of those elements of your background probably provide you with the skills that you need and the perspective that you need to understand the types of harms that occur to vulnerable populations. Uh, I I think that the the multidisciplinary approach is uh, is frequently uh, derided in the in the tech industry. Uh, just like go get more tech skills, it will be fine. All we care about are your tech skills. But it turns out that if you have tech skills uh, without context and it they do not come with you know the soft skills of dealing with other people or uh, the uh, social science skills of understanding the world around you, uh, then you end up with technology that uh, just recreates all of the existing imbalances of, uh, of power in this world and often makes them worse. And then you end up with a bunch of technologists going, we have absolutely no idea how this happened. <laughs> yeah, it's true, but on the flip side, Um, You can bring technologists into this space to fix the problem and bring policymakers along too. Um, Definitely want to mention the big win that you had recently in Maryland, where the governor, Larry Hogan, just signed a bill that would require law enforcement agencies 
to learn and recognize the common tactics and laws around electronic surveillance or stalkerware. Can you tell us a little bit more about the important gap that this filled and what more needs to be done? Sure. Uh, so this was uh, SB 134 in the great state of Maryland. Uh, I was approached by uh, State Senator Lee uh, asking essentially like what Maryland could do about stalkerware and about physical trackers and you know, other forms of tech-enabled abuse. And what I told her was that uh, survivors come to me all the time and they say, so I have this evidence that I'm being stalked. I have found a physical tracker or I am using antivirus software and the scan has found that I have stalkerware installed on my phone. Um, but I bring this information to my local police and my local police don't do anything. Sometimes they, uh, they gaslight the survivors and they essentially tell them this is not a real problem or they tell them go to the FBI who is not going to do anything about it. Or they say, well, this, this is a computer crime. It has to go to our computer crimes division. And then the computer crimes division has been tasked with prioritizing financial crimes above all else. And so they just never get around to helping survivors. Um, whereas one of the things that, that police could really benefit from is a training that helps them understand um, what tools uh, abusers use uh, in order to engage in this sort of tech-enabled abuse, uh, how to recognize them, and the ways in which they might be investigated, because these are actually not very technically sophisticated. This does not require your computer crimes division, uh, and uh, I would really like for the uh, survivors who go to police uh, to actually be able to get help instead of just being further victimized. So I, uh, I worked with uh, Senator Lee's office and we came up with a bill that would require police in the academy to receive a training about exactly how all of this works and how you recognize it and what you should do about it. So they will be, uh, they will be getting this training uh, before they even become police. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, this is the year in which all of the state academies are essentially revamping their trainings and thinking about exactly what it is that uh, that police need to learn before they become police. Uh, so it was especially good timing. Um, I I love to claim success. Believe me, I I love I love a win. Uh, but this is only a partial win. Uh, what we have so far is a theory that we could uh, that we could improve. Um, the the way that victims are treated when they come to the police through training. So now, now we have to write the training, train the police, and see whether or not it worked. Uh, but my hope is that if this turns out to be effective, that we can use this as a model bill in other states. So as a follow-up, what do some of these trainings look like in your head? I, I know that it's a, a work in progress at the moment, but as someone who comes from uh, more of a technical engineering, reverse engineering side, I find it super cool to be able to properly and hopefully have this support network of people that can actually serve their communities in this way. Well, uh, I have done some you know, talks with law enforcement uh, and I have worked with other people who have specifically done trainings for law enforcement. Uh, so I have, uh, have some vision for what the training will look like, uh, but in the end, the contents of the training are not up to me. Uh, they, they are up to a commission that controls the trainings over at, uh, at the academy. I merely have suggestions about what the training should include and what it should look like. 
And I can imagine that part of the training might be to illustrate to these soon-to-be officers what the risks actually are, what the harms are, um, what the vulnerable populations look like, and why this is not just a very niche um, issue that affects a very small amount of people, but is actually quite common and maybe more common than they might anticipate. What goes into that um, breaking down of people's stereotypes about the problem, their preconceived notions about what this problem looks like, and how can we maybe use some of that awareness raising in other parts of society as well? Well, um, again, I haven't spent a lot of time training police already, so I uh, and I haven't spent a lot of time looking into whether or not my trainings are effective. So I uh, I hesitate answer <laughs> to answer that question because I'm not sure that I'm qualified. Um, I can tell you that from my trainings with other populations, that uh, one of the most important things uh, to teach people is uh, confidence in their own technical skills because frequently the, the people who are out there who support survivors, um, the moment that they, that they see something technical, they freeze and they don't feel empowered to understand what it is or, uh, or to investigate it. And uh, that is one of the reasons why uh, survivors sometimes just get turned away by people saying like, I can't do anything. This, this requires some sort of technical wizard. Um, and you don't need a wizard. These are, these are actually really simple and straightforward things that you can look for. Uh, and I'm perfectly happy to make checklists and, uh, and diagrams and everything that you might need uh, in order to make this as simple as possible. Uh, I have worked with the companies to make this as simple as possible, um, precisely so that you don't need uh, an engineer in order to understand this. And then the big problem for engineers is uh, that even if you understand the technical problem, uh, often engineers are not operating from, uh, uh, from a place of understanding uh, tech-enabled abuse uh, or understanding domestic abuse or uh, understanding trauma. Uh, and so often what I have to teach engineers is uh, how to take a trauma-centric approach to, uh, to helping survivors. Uh, because a lot of the advice that engineers give uh, to other engineers uh, is actually not very useful for trauma survivors uh, and is often given in a way that's really off-putting and alienating and that does not help them. Um, and for that, I drew a lot from my experience uh, working with journalists and activists all over the world, and especially uh, activists in authoritarian countries. Uh, I spent a lot of time talking to very scared people um, involved in high stakes situations where a lot was on the line. Uh, and they did not have time for long nuanced discussions. They wanted just like a couple of punchy bits of advice that I could give them that they could implement quickly and in a hurry. Uh, and uh, that's really what I try to do when, when I work directly with survivors. Um, and also uh, to do it all in a way that is, uh, that is accepting and that's not judgmental, uh, which can also be a little bit difficult for engineers sometimes. <laughs> that's all really exciting and I can't wait to see what comes of this legislation. Um, and hopefully it does serve as a blueprint for other states as well. So congrats on that win. Thank you. Just want to ask a question about that 
terminology and how to communicate across different types of communities where you've got engineers maybe on one side, policymakers in another space, uh, people who are um, working in civil society on the other hand, and often terms don't match up quite so nicely. One of the things that our RAR team talked about in our previous episode is how to determine what vulnerability looks like. In cybersecurity, vulnerability is usually thought about within the context of a weakness in a system. But from my background, I spent five years at a nonprofit on human rights issues. We talk about vulnerable populations and we talk about vulnerability in the context of um, systemic uh, inequalities or how vulnerable populations, for example, racial and ethnic minorities, children or elderly people um, may have more vulnerable characteristics than, than others and how do we dis disaggregate the impacts on those types of communities. So if, if we're thinking about vulnerable people within the context of digital and cyber harms, how do you define it and how do you think about it? Well, uh, to be fair, I, I helped to start a, uh, a sort of a sub subsection of my organization that conflates these two things, or at least like that combines them, because uh, frequently uh, vulnerable populations are being targeted with, uh, you know, software vulnerabilities, with hardware vulnerabilities, with vulnerabilities in systems and in policies and in terms of service. Uh, with, you know, sort of weaknesses that were not meant to be there. Um, but I think it's also really important for engineers to understand that certain weaknesses are, uh, are actually built into the system. That uh, the, the nature of systemic inequality <laughs> is that it's baked in uh, and that it's our job to, uh, uh, to sort of level those inequalities and to address them. One of the, the hardest parts of my job when I'm trying to explain sort of human rights to, to engineers is uh, explaining to them that the system working correctly, the system working as designed is still unjust uh, and that we need to make systemic changes. Uh, and that can often be a tremendous stumbling block um, likewise, one of the sort of the flip side of this is that working in human rights, uh, sometimes I get people who don't have much of a technical background and so their ideas about uh, what can and should be done from a technical point of view um, are simply not very informed. Um, there's, there's a lot of, well, you can fix Twitter by just getting rid of the Nazis with your anti-Nazi button, which is definitely how it's going to be done. Um, and uh, you know you can get rid of the terrorists by just backdooring encryption and allowing the government to see who's a terrorist. Nothing will go wrong with this plan. Um, and then you just replace terrorist with pedophile and you get exactly the same argument about backdooring encryption, which is happening right now in the United States government, uh, which really the, the FBI brings up every few months. Um, so, Translating between these two worlds can sometimes be uh, challenging. Um, but the good news is that uh, at least both of them understand that vulnerability means something different in this different context. Uh, and I'm really happy that one of the things that I can do is I can show them that like that is exactly the intersection of my work. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I'm glad that you sit right at that nexus because I think that's so important to be able to translate between different 
sectors and different types of people who work in this space. Can you share a little bit about how you've seen the world evolve over the last 20 years or so that you've been working in this area? Are we getting better at understanding the impact of cyber on people and centering them in the conversation? Or are things just getting more complicated and harder to manage? Well, I have to give you the same answer that I give everybody else, which is uh, everything is getting better and also everything is getting worse. Uh, And both of these things are happening very quickly. Because on one hand, we are all more connected to each other than we ever were before. And uh, in some ways, that is very good. Uh, the, the technology and information that is available to you know, sort of ordinary people is, uh, is greater than it ever has been before. And to some extent, that's pretty cool. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> uh, the fact that we are all more connected than ever also leaves us more vulnerable than ever. Uh, and the fact that the internet has really um, moved away from its original promise of decentralization and towards a, a really a concentration of just a few platforms uh, is also really problematic. Um, but one of the things that I'm very excited about is that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of enthusiasm for decentralization right now. Uh, and, and that makes me happy. Uh, often that enthusiasm gets funneled into NFTs and cryptocurrency, which is not as great. Uh, but what I really want to do is I want to take all of that enthusiasm and all of that feeling that we can really return to the original promise of the web as, uh, as a force that, uh, that pushes us away from centralized authority and that helps to uh, correct power imbalances instead of just reinforcing the ones that already exist. Like the fact that there are people who think like this and who you know, want it to exist in the world is something that I think is really important to harness right now. Yeah, and who are the people that need to be involved in harnessing that power, I, I, I guess. Um, it's, it sounds like a massive task, a massive undertaking. Where should we be educating, empowering, uh, or providing resources and support to people in this effort? For that particular enthusiasm, uh, it means like going into the Web3 spaces. Uh, like it means going to cryptocurrency conferences and talking to people who are you know, very enthusiastic about uh, things which are honestly grifts uh, and finding a way to take all of that sort of optimism and, uh, and enthusiasm and channel it into, uh, into more genuine and authentic action and really move it away from a, a focus on, uh, on crypto coins going to the moon and the collection of apes. As a follow-up to that, even, Eva, um, we've talked about quite a few stakeholders on this podcast so far. I mean, c- going from you know, Web3 to the FBI to big tech companies and all of these issues, especially when trying to best protect users, the general public, uh, vulnerable populations, there's quite a few places where despite having fundamentally different goals as organizations, sometimes hopefully these interests align. So are there instances in which you've been able to work with some of these stakeholders on certain issues protecting certain populations where in other times they've actually been adversarial? 
Oh, all the time. Uh, this is this is just the nature of activism. You you have uh, you have people with whom you agree on everything. You have people with whom you agree on just a few subjects. You have the people that you're always going to be opposed to, uh, and you find your allies where you can and try not to get too bogged down in arguments about who is ideologically more pure. Um, and so you can see that in uh, EFF's relationship to you know, everything from governments to specific tech companies to, uh, you know, we frequently uh, are um, critical <laughs> of large tech companies. And we're really quite outspoken in this area, but I also work closely with these companies um, when our when our interests are aligned, uh, and uh, as a result, EFF gets a lot of, of flack, basically saying like, "Ah, you are in the in the pocket of big tech because you agreed with big tech on this one thing once." Uh, it's like, no, we uh, we stick to our guns. We, we are here for, uh, for civil liberties. And uh, we will take big tech as partners when, uh, when they agree with us. And uh, we will set fire to them when they are wrong. <laughs> and the same thing goes for you know, various parts of the US government, for you know, various senators and congressmen and uh, you know, different countries. Uh, it is, it's, less that we agree with any, there's almost no one we agree with all the time. Um, but you also need to be able to find common ground uh, with other organizations and with other stakeholders or you're never gonna get anything done. You mentioned um, partnerships with other countries or conversations with other countries as well. Is there a sense of um, the US being a little bit behind the eight ball compared to others at this point in time and what would it take to gain a little bit more momentum in the United States so that we can meet the pace of peer countries on these topics? Well, uh, it depends on what you mean. Uh, when it comes to innovation, I think that uh, one of the things that the U.S. really needs to come to grips with is uh, the rise of uh, of Chinese companies and platforms as a, as a major influence in, uh, in social media and the tools that we have to influence what Chinese companies do are much more limited than the tools that we have to uh, influence a company that say exists down the street from me. Um, so there's, there is that to consider. Uh, there's also, um, the United States is way behind Europe when it comes to privacy legislation. Uh, and I think that we should definitely be talking about something like a GDPR. Uh, for the United States. California is actually quite uh, quite progressive in this area, and I would really love to see uh, California's privacy legislation used as a model in other states. Uh, and it has been in some, but I would like to see it like really more widespread. Um, we, on the other hand, there are also areas in which uh, uh, US policy leadership is, uh, is still a pretty big deal. Uh, for example, uh, in in cases of defamation, uh, or when it comes to the um, platforms, uh, the TOS and and policies of large internet platforms. A lot of these large internet companies are still based in the United States, 
and their ideas about uh, you know what they can and cannot do are still very influenced by uh, by U.S. law, uh, and I think their users are often in their terms of policy, uh, terms of service policy, um, agree to adjudicate in uh, in California court. Uh, so in that case, California law rules, um, and I think that that is that's still like a really strong influence. Um, so it really depends on sort of what area uh, you're looking at. There, are, there are areas where the U.S. has really fallen behind, and there are areas where where the U.S. is uh, is still uh, exhibiting leadership. Yeah, privacy is a great example, um, and. Hopefully there is a more privacy legislation in the near future, either at the federal level or certainly at the state level, um, that will come to fruition. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, but instead we have a new backdoor encryption (laughs) bill. (laughs) Two steps forward, one step back. Well, that's um, it's great to get your take on that because I think that's something that our group has been thinking about. How do we influence policymakers and how do we think about the steps that are necessary uh, to move things in the right direction, knowing that sometimes things are going to be a little bit piecemeal and sometimes it will feel like we're uh, a little bit late to the game, but that should spur us further uh, to take action on these topics. There's actually a really great book uh, called, I think, uh, Girls Lean Back Everywhere, which is a, uh, a book about the sort of long-term uh, fights in U.S. courts about free speech and obscenity. And I found it really useful, uh, not just because I spend a lot of time working in free speech, uh, and so the kind of development of these of these cases means a lot to me, but because it taught me a lot about how to fight a long fight, uh, because these are fights that play out over over decades, and they require a lot of patience and a lot of strategic thinking. And it's really easy to just wake up every day and put out today's fire, uh, or at least try to put out today's fire. Uh, and that can make it really hard to, to fight a long-term fight. Um, so I, I recommend this to the people who are really getting started in the field to think about this as a, you know, as a decades-long project where you need to sort of stake out your your smaller wins first and enjoy them while sort of keeping your eye on the prize. That's amazing. I'm definitely putting that on my summer reading list where hopefully I'll be able to get through it this summer. <laughs> it also makes me think about one of the analogies that our, our, our team used um, around this long-term fight. And we talked about how cyber is often discussed in war terminology, thinking about adversaries and defenders or crime terminology. Um, But the way that our ecosystem is becoming more vulnerable over time and over a longer time frame is actually somewhat similar to that of climate change and that it might be helpful to use that framing to better understand which communities will be most impacted by a cyber incident in the same way that we think about how communities are impacted by an extreme weather event. And then how do you consider building resilience in those communities? What are your thoughts on that analogy and about the ways in which we can use different framings of the problem to help us better address the human impacts of cyber? I think that's really smart. Uh, this is actually a framing that I haven't heard before, so I'm very excited to, uh, to hear new and innovative thinking in this area. Um, I think that um, you might want to look 
at the history of the fight for uh, broadband in, uh, in rural places in the United States. I think that that might be really informative because that's definitely a case where uh, people who, who live in rural areas not having access to fast internet has uh, disproportionately affected people who, uh, who are poorer and who need communication uh, technologies uh, more and who are you know, much more adversely impacted uh, when, when they are you know, stuck in places with, uh, with slow internet. Uh, especially in uh, you know during our our recent plague, uh, when everybody suddenly had to move to remote learning, uh, and that was extremely difficult to, uh, for people in rural populations without access to fast internet to do. Yeah, COVID nineteen really shined a spotlight on that problem. Is there a way that we can highlight these inequalities? and focus on addressing them without needing a global pandemic to spur action on this? But here's the thing, we already have a global pandemic, so like, might as well roll with it. (laughs) It's true, we we can definitely be using this as a a great case study, and I'm sure it will continue to be used for decades on um, how this brought to light a lot of different challenges that rural communities have and other, communities with low socioeconomic status or who might not be connected in the same ways that uh, that other parts of the world, urban parts of the world are. Yeah, and especially since these are communities that also really needed uh, health information uh, mm-hmm. and access to, uh, to vaccines and access to boosters uh, and PPE. Uh, and these were all things that uh, you could get information about online. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll see what the next year or two brings as we hopefully emerge from COVID times and have the opportunity to work on and fix some of these problems that that we were just trying to where we were trying to just put out fires over the last two years. Yeah, I think uh, trying trying to move from putting out fires to more long term thinking is uh, is sometimes the hardest part of, uh, of of activism because there's. There's always something on fire. Can you give us and our audience a little bit of insight into how you manage that question, how you deal with the tension between putting out fires today and thinking about longer term issues? (sighs) Bold of you to assume I'm successful at it. I, I think I actually learned a lot from, uh, from working with communities in North Africa and the Middle East during the Arab Spring. Uh, and uh, a lot of that had to do with understanding uh, both how to fight a long-term fight, uh, but also how to triage, uh, how to look at like, this is actually on fire and this is a thing where I can do some good, where I am the right person in the right space to do this work. Uh, and so I should drop everything and do this. Uh, whereas there are, there are a lot of people who want to do things. And sometimes the right thing to do is to hand over uh, work to someone else. That there is always somebody else in the space uh, who can uh, who can step up. Uh, and sharing the load is really important. Uh, for one thing, it helps 
it helps to prevent the sort of rock star syndrome uh, where one person gets you know, elevated above everybody else and uh, suddenly the rules don't apply to them because they do good work uh, and they're allowed to, to be abusive in their communities, uh, which is a, a problem that the information security and uh, human rights uh, community has had in spades. Um, but also, I think it's good because it encourages us to continue to build our networks. To, uh, if you know that you can't hold all the work yourself, you start looking for other people who can do the work and you keep track of what kind of work they can do so that you can hand it over to them when it's time. <laughs> and we all, we all rely on one another and we are not gonna make it through this fight unless we have each other's backs. Uh, and sometimes it can be really easy to lose sight of that. Uh, but I think that that is the only way to survive doing activism uh, on, on a grand scale and in the long term. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. And I definitely think that one of the best things that I've gained uh, in graduate school here at HKS is a community of other like-minded people who I know I will be able to fight alongside in the world that comes after HKS. Um, especially people who are underrepresented, women, minorities, non-binary folks, and I'm just really excited about the prospect of going out there and doing something alongside these amazing people. I, I have also been extremely impressed with this cohort. <laughs> <laughs> so what comes next? What can we do to better protect vulnerable populations in our own individual lives? And what should we recommend policymakers do about this problem as well? Well, uh, this week's fire is uh, just the immediate thing <laughs> is uh, the protection of uh, of the people who are uh, who may need or are seeking abortions and sort of the maintenance of uh, of reproductive health and reproductive rights. Um, I think that uh, trans rights are also very much uh, under attack right now. And so those are sort of the immediate fires. Uh, I just did a video with a colleague of mine about uh, uh, sort of operational security for people who are, uh, who are doing abortion support right now. Uh, and that is a situation that uh, is clearly about to get worse and is about to get much worse very quickly. Um, so that's, that's today's fire. Uh, but in, in the longer term, <laughs> there, there are some other things that, uh, that we can work on, including, uh, changing the way that people think about, uh, about domestic abuse and about, uh, tech enabled abuse, which is, uh, also something which, uh, which is in the news right now. Uh, trying to make it clear that when you're when you're looking at a best, at domestic abuse that you need to look at the power dynamic you need to ask yourself like who who has the power here uh, and that the person who has the power also has the responsibility and that is the person who needs to be held accountable first and foremost um, so those discussions I think are also really important uh, there is uh, there is another backdoor bill in the Senate right now thanks Senator Blumenthal uh, that needs to be destroyed uh, there's a encryption backdoor proposal in uh, I think it's in the European Parliament right now uh, which also needs to be destroyed so 
a lot to do in that area. Uh, and also uh, the, the previous fire, <laughs> which I had been working on uh, and which I'm still working on, is uh, support for what's left of civil society in Russia and uh, for Ukrainians everywhere, including uh, Ukrainian refugees. So those have been sort of like the big things on my plate right now. Uh, that's, that's a lot of fires. <laughs> You must have a very big plate to be able to hold all of those. That's amazing. And it's clear there's a lot of work to be done. I am very lucky in that I have a large support network and uh, a lot of people to, to share the load. And that's what allows us to, to get so much done. Well, do you have any last advice for people who are either early on in their careers in this space or transitioning from another field into this space? How should we be thinking about the work that we do, maintaining our idealism in a space where there are a lot of problems and a lot of um, good and a lot of bad happening right now? What's your advice for us? My best advice is start with a community that you know. Start with a community that, you're, that you are part of, that you have lived in, that you have you know, relatives in, that you see and touch every day. Um, because the, the more marginalized you are, the better the chance uh, is that, um, that the people who are making the decisions aren't even thinking about this community. They're not, and even if they are, that they don't understand what it needs and they don't understand how to speak to it. Uh, and uh, the people who are listening to this podcast, I think are largely people who are uh, in a position to be translators. Uh, to see the things that the, that the people at the center of power can't see because they're so far away and also because they don't look. Uh, and so what we can do is we can be messengers from the margins and, and try to, to bring those concerns uh, to the center and change the way that we have conversations about, um, about who deserves security and about who deserves privacy and what those things even look like and how we would implement them and sort of like what companies are for and what these products are for and what these laws are for and you know, who they're meant to protect uh, and who are they meant to protect them from. Uh, these are all questions that, that really need to be asked among the people who are making decisions that touch our everyday lives. Um, about products and platforms and laws and governments that touch our lives every day. Uh, and uh, I, I would think that the people who are listening to this podcast are going to be the people who are in the best position to, to bring these concerns to people who otherwise uh, would not see them uh, or would not think that they're important. Amazing. I love to hear that, and I think you're right, that the people who are listening here, the people that are listening to this podcast, are not afraid of the hard problems, but excited to work on them. And so all the things that you laid out here, we're, we're ready. We're ready to ask those questions and be those translators. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Eva, for joining us today on our podcast. We're so glad to have the opportunity to chat with you and look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Fantastic, it's been a pleasure. 
Wow, this is it, team. We made it. I can't believe it. <laughs> How did we start it? Did we start it with hello, world? Goodbye, world. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not so dramatic. I remember, I remember the, fr- well, I was just telling Michaela, I remember getting the text from her when she was like, hey, do you want to do an independent study with Eric Rosenbach? And that feels honestly like it was last month and suddenly we're not writing a 25 page paper. <laughs> we just got to hang out like every week together. <laughs> now we have a yeah. podcast. Like what, how, how, when did this, why is it going so fast? Yeah, Michaela really rallied the team on our, this. The Nick Fury to <laughs> our adventures. The Nick Fury of this crew. I mean, honestly, this wouldn't have happened without all of you. It was definitely a team effort. Absolutely. 100%. I also want to shout out all of our beautiful marketing materials, largely from Bethan. Oh, yes. It's like, hey, wouldn't it be so fun if we had stickers? And literally the next week you'd be like, anyway, here are two types of stickers that I made. What do you guys think? Should we give one to Eric? I would be remiss not to thank Winona, our taskmaster, getting us on track every day of the week. Running a tight ship. Truly. Just really good at sending follow-up passive-aggressive WhatsApp messages. That's really all it is. I, I don't think passive. I wouldn't even say oh, passive. outright aggressive WhatsApp. Assertive. Aggressive. Assertive. Assertive. Bossy is not a bad word, Winona. <laughs> no, not even. I... I am so inspired by every single one of you and how much I've learned throughout this whole process. And then Danny and Grace being able to have all of those like amazing discussions, like the amount of times I feel like the three of us have disagreed with each other in such a productive way, I think has also been super good. It, it's the greatest honor of my life, Winona, to disagree with you. <laughs> Live on the air. <laughs> um, well, I do think it would be... I'm I'm interested to know what what people are doing these days to afford stickers. If um, I'm just I'm interning right now, remotely for Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Um, yeah, what's everyone else up to? I'm back at Mitre working as an analyst on emerging tech competition and program protection. I'm currently in D.C. interning for InQtel on their strategic issues team. Thankfully, I've got Sophie and Winona also in DC with me, although I'm missing Danny, Grace, and Michaela very much. Well, Michaela is moving there. In the, well, I guess you guys will be back because me, Beth, and Sophie will be back for our second year HKS. But Winona is staying for, oh my God, 1L. Georgetown Law, baby. Are you nervous? Oh, yes. 100%. Hoya. Yes. Hoya, Loya. <laughs> Michaela, Danny, what are you guys doing now? I am doing a research fellowship this summer with the Krebs Demos group. And then we'll be uh, starting some cyber policy work with the federal government. I'm excited about that. Very exciting. Um, I am doing some research this summer with the Belfer group on extremism in our intelligence communities and military. So. If anybody wants to talk about that, do a podcast about that, let's chat. Um, and then still exploring full-time roles. I start uh, with my Army unit, now New York National Guard, shout out Cyber Protection Team 173, in July. So doing that part-time. Woohoo! Ooh. But you still have to come back for season two. Yes, please. Yeah, are we doing a season two? Yes. Yes. Stay tuned, loyal listeners. <laughs> <laughs> 
seriously, yeah, I guess talking to our audience, if you have any ideas or would like to collaborate, especially uh, for people who are experts that don't usually get the spotlight that we would love to highlight, um, yeah, please send us a, a Twitter DM, a LinkedIn message. Um, we have a, an email. It's uh, cyberrar.podcast at gmail.com. To that point of getting people you know, unique voices on this podcast. I think that's what's so special about this group and the mission that we came together is to, you know, elevate different types of voices, have conversations that are engaging and dynamic, um, which we've had all of our discussions have been like that. And it's just really special to have seen this go from an idea into a real live podcast. Yeah. I also, what's been really special in the last couple of weeks you know, at the time we're recording this, we've got a couple episodes released, but not all of them. And even in these early days, I've been really, it's been really lovely to see the response from everyone from people who I wouldn't say regularly follow this world, but, you know, who decided to dip their toes in to people who are, you know, far, far deeper in this world than we are, who've written to say, this has been really interesting and Hey, I'd love to be a part of it. Um, so it feels like there's a lot of fertile ground still and, you know, maybe maybe laying the seeds for season two. Yeah, and super grateful to all of the interviewees who have agreed to come on so far and to the folks at the Belfair Center who've been so supportive and so helpful yeah, truly. and so patient with getting all of the promotional materials out and just helping us bring this to life. So, so grateful. Yeah, calling out, of course, our advisor, Eric Rosenbach, Josh Burick, uh, Ben Craig, to them and the whole Belfer Center. Thank you so much for, for empowering us as we decided to make this podcast. And finally, thank you to all of our listeners. Like This is so exciting for us to see how many people have reached out to us, and we are so excited that you've taken the time to listen. Listen, my attention is for sale. Any day. (laughs) Chris, no. Thanks for listening to Cyber.RAR, a podcast by Harvard Kennedy School students. Given that this is a student-led program, this podcast doesn't represent the views of any institution that we're connected to. And our opinions on these topics are evolving so they may change after we finish recording this episode on May 18th, 2022. If you or anyone else you know might be at risk of a digital attack or targeting in any way, we've put some resources in the show notes that point you towards best practices, guidance, and organizations that are looking out for people who might have digital security needs. Please take a look.